Hello, friends. Welcome to what I'm going to call episode 114 of the Spirituality for Ordinary People podcast. My name is Matt Bruff. I'm a pastor in Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada, and I'm also an author and obviously a podcaster since you're listening to a podcast right now. Uh, we did a series over the summer uh, called Be Still and Behold, and uh, it was 10 weeks long over the summer, really great series, and we just put that on this podcast feed, uh, it was a series that we put together at my church, and I hope it was uh, helpful for you or uh, you were able to engage that in some way. And we just put the whole liturgy on the uh, podcast feed. And uh, so I hope you appreciated that. I really appreciated actually the opening psalm every time in the in the services or in the liturgy. Um, and uh, I, I, I don't go back and listen to these, but I did kind of just go and listen to a couple of openings. And, um, and I realized, I think if I was going through that, I would have preferred the audio version over the video. We've, they're on YouTube as well, and you can watch. And, the, and some of the scripture readings and prayers and things we recorded in, in some outdoor kind of nice and interesting locations. So I, I guess that there's that aspect to the video, but I, I really kind of like the audio. I find that maybe it's a little more personal. I also just love podcasts. So I guess I like listening and I like going for a walk and listening or driving and listening. So uh, that might just be my bias. Uh, so I did say we're calling this episode 114. That might be accurate. Uh, essentially, I left off before the series uh, quite a number of months ago. Uh, the last interview that I that I put out, I believe, was uh, episode 103. And then we've had 10 in this series. There was a little intro. I'm not going to count that as an episode. And so we'll count all those 10 as episodes and uh, so, yeah, that brings us to 114. And something I discovered a week or so ago is somehow I had lost an interview that I'd done and uh, and then re- recovered it. And so I'm really happy to be able to bring you this interview that I did quite a while back now. Um might have been early 2022 or late 2021. Uh, not totally sure when that recording got done. But this is a recording with AJ Sherrill. Um, and what a great conversation. Uh, he, at the time, had a book out. I think he may even have another book coming out now. Or I guess you could be listening to this anytime. But the book that we end up talking about is a book called Being with God. And uh, I'll give you the subtitle in a minute, because I really love the subtitle of this book. And uh, we talk about this um, in the interview. But uh, I I just thought it was really interesting that we just did a a whole series on um, the presence of God as described in the Hebrew scriptures. And um, throughout it, I was thinking... Well, yeah, I have a I have a book called um, "Let God Be Present," you know, about the presence of God, and then I have this interview sitting here uh, with this really fantastic author um, and uh, also a pastor 
and it's called being with God, uh, about being in God's presence. And so, uh, yeah, I just thought this was really great timing. I'm glad somehow this interview got lost in the shuffle and is able to come out now rather than uh, back, I guess, when it was supposed to, in air quotes, supposed to. Uh, So yeah, anyway, the subtitle, uh, this great subtitle, Being With God, The Absurdity, Necessity, and Neurology of Contemplative Prayer. What is that all about? Uh, you know, as as a pastor, I might say, oh yeah, okay, let's talk about the necessity, like why we need to have, uh, you know, quiet time, why we need to have contemplative prayer, you know, quiet prayer with God, if we're going to think about it that way. But, um, <laughs> but tell us more about <laughs> the absurdity part. <laughs> why is this so absurd? Uh, and maybe it is. Uh, but also the neurology, like, so it kind of gets into brain science a little bit in this book. Uh, I was really, uh, fortunate to have an advanced copy of this. And I think that was intended. So this interview would come out, uh, at the appropriate time. So I apologize, uh, to, I guess, to AJ and to the publisher Brazos Press, who kindly sent me a copy. Um, but it's coming out now. It's here now. And uh, this book is, it's not a long book, but it's a really good book. I highly recommend it. Um, go and find it, look it up now, and and go and check it out. So yeah, uh, Being With God. The Absurdity, Necessity, and Neurology of Contemplative Prayer. <laughs> I love the title. Uh, subtitle, so good. Uh, yeah, so here we go. Here's my interview with AJ Sherrill. Oh, and now that I'm going to introduce you, AJ, I'm realizing I want to know how to uh, say your last name. Yeah, yours too. Um, it's Cheryl. Cheryl. Okay. And then my last name is Bruff. So I tell people all the time, um, just the word rough with a B in front of it. I was really hoping it was bro. Yeah, I know. I a lot of people call me that. I just let them do it. Right. <laughs> yeah. Today on the podcast, I have AJ Cheryl, and it is such a pleasure to have you on this podcast today. Yeah, Matt, it's great to meet you, and uh, I'm looking forward to the conversation. Yeah. Uh, the main reason that we wanted to talk today um, was about your new book that's coming out. Uh, it is called Being With God. The Absurdity, Necessity, and Neurology of Contemplative Prayer. And hey, what a subtitle. That's a that's catchy. People are going to want to go and get this just from the subtitle, I think. Gosh, I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> maybe I should have made that the main title. Uh, maybe. Um, <laughs> it wouldn't have fit as nice on the, on the graphic on the front, probably. That's true. Uh, so can we just... I just want to jump right in and just talk about contemplative prayer, since that's sort of the in that subtitle, and just ask you about... Why is contemplative prayer a necessity? Why do you think that is a necessity? Wow, jumping right in. Before we do, let me get a little yeah. shallow. Um, oh, okay, perfect. Being with God wasn't actually the, the title I wanted. It was, it was the title that I think is right. And I found out uh, through humble and gracious, joyful submission that the publishers often write, not always, but often. I wanted to call it um, Goats in the Trees. Um, <laughs> 
for uh, a reason that um, is in the first or second chapter. I can't remember, but um, it's a whole metaphor for this idea of contemplation, contemplative spirituality. I think to answer your question, um, you know, I think we're in a place where like pre-COVID, everyone realized like, okay, life's pretty busy externally, whether it's traffic where you are or email or just hectic schedules, raising kids, all that stuff. And I think COVID was a great opportunity to name that because things kind of slowed down a little bit, at least for most of us. But what we found is that our inner lives are noisier than even our outer lives have ever been. Mm -hmm. And that's what I think contemplative prayer is helpful to aim at is whether your outer life has calmed down, our inner lives are still raging in so many ways. They're like these oceans of tide currents that are just, they're so murky because the water is moving um, so fast and there's so much, um, there's so much activity that you don't actually have like clarity to the bottom, um, because there's, it's just been murked up and there's just wave activity. So like contemplation is that invitation to try to still the waters a little bit so that you can get clarity, um, about what you're really about and what you really want in life and who God is at the core of our being. Yeah. I I said this the other day, I think might've been last week's sermon at church, uh, but it was basically just saying that some people have talked about uh, going through COVID being either a wandering in the wilderness or exile. Some people have talked about it as kind of a forced Sabbath. And I think a throwaway comment for me was just, but nobody feels well rested. <laughs> like that's, and maybe that's a little bit of what you're talking about as well Is just, okay, there's a ceasing of activity, but there's still just this turmoil. And so we're still just tired, even though yes. physically we might've had more time on our hands. Um, it doesn't feel that way. Um, we feel exhausted. Yeah. I mean, I, I remember when COVID started, that was the framework. You're exactly right. The, oh, great. Before Sabbath, we needed this. I, I remember confessing to my church at the time I was pastoring a church uh, in Grand Rapids called Marcel Bible Church. And um, I remember confessing to my church, like maybe it was like two to three months in that I haven't really been able to read a book mm. in like a month. And I'm I probably like you, I, looking at your bookshelf behind you, I, I like reading is like there's, you know, God, my family and reading, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like reading is is up there for me. And I just the 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 mental fear, anxiety, all of that stuff was so high that we just didn't have resource to process things at a deep um, sort of um, at a deep level that was meaningful. I couldn't even give myself to reading because absorbing more information, just I didn't have the capacity to do it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So we can come back. We're going to talk a bunch about contemplative prayer or the contemplative life. Um, But also you have this word absurdity in uh, in your subtitle, but also throughout the book, you talk about Western culture being absurd. And maybe you want to talk more about goats and trees and kind of explain that analogy too. Um, so what do you mean when you're talking about Western culture being absurd? Uh, and then also you mentioned that the contemplative life might be viewed in society as a kind of reverse absurdity. So we have sort of the absurdity of culture, of our culture that we live in. And then if we actually practice a contemplative life, That'll look absurd in the culture that we're in. Yeah, so um, I'll leave the guts and trees metaphor for for readers to go find. But the sure. <laughs> the thing that I think illustrates that concept best is on July thirteenth of twenty nineteen, 
before COVID, um, there was a uh, a concert happening in Madison Square Garden in New York City with JLo, and all the lights went out in Times Square because they had a power outage. Thankfully, it wasn't like a terrorist attack or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but so you had 70,000 people stumbling out into Times Square, and they all had their cell phones lit to try to illuminate the path. And, you know, JLo was not happy. <laughs> um, and everyone was like, the next day, everyone was like, oh, my goodness, like, what a what a shocker i think the headlines were just like you know the lights go out in times square and that's true like that's a shocker because what do you expect at 4 a.m in times square you expect lights like what do you expect at 4 p.m lights what do you expect at 12 a.m 12 p.m lights 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 and i remember thinking about that how weird it was to see i mean you can even google the power outage and it's creepy to see manhattan dark in like midtown area, you know, that's always bright because of Times Square. And I remember thinking at that moment, that is weird, but what's weirder that the lights went out or that we expect them to always be on. And that for me is like a great uh, lens for absurdity because that's how we run our own lives. We don't sleep the amount of hours we need every night to really play the long game of mental and um, physiological health spiritual health. Um, we max out our credit cards. Um, we, we do all of these things in extreme. Our diets are crazy. Um, we binge watch and brag about it. Like everything is kind of like maxed out and that has become like normal for us. Like it's not weird to talk about binging shows, to talk about pushing sleep by watching reruns of the office. Um, which by the way, I've, I fully recommend the British version more than the American version, um, of the office. But, um, I, I just think that that's absurd that we have begun to call, I think what our ancestors would think of as, as absurd, we've begun to call that normal. So if you live into a different pattern of stillness, silence, solitude, these rhythms that God created the universe for us to be in convergence with, um, I think that we are the ones that end up looking like we're absurd. So it's kind of like a reverse absurdity um, that we would quote unquote waste time or, um, you know, that, that we would have anything in moderation. Um, that's sort of absurd in the culture that we're living in. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Um, really like that. Uh, you drew a distinction that I hadn't really seen before uh, between mindfulness and contemplation. I made a lot of sense to me. And so I wonder if you can just kind of walk us through, like, what is the difference? Because I, I think there's lots of interest in mindfulness. And I don't know, may, part of me wonders, too, about, I think you're right about our culture. But at the same time, there seems to be this interest in things like mindfulness or mindfulness apps and some kind of spirituality. But maybe we don't quite know what we're talking about. Um, so is that is that distinction between mindfulness and contemplation a helpful one to kind of get at that? I think so in a way that I'm not trying to create an adversarial relationship yeah, yeah. between the two. I, I think I would applaud corporate structures that are looking and realizing that their employees are tired and feel used at many levels. How can we help them cope with stress and anxiety and all of the pressures that we feel um, in the sort of moment that we're in? And I think mindfulness for a lot of people um, when I've studied mindfulness, it seems like the, the the main theme of mindfulness is detachment. And in that way, it's very Eastern in a sense of um, um, almost Buddhist in that way of, of the ideas, detachment, desirelessness, letting go. 
And I think that there's a lot of gains in that. I don't think when it comes to like the desert fathers and mothers and a lot of our monastic tradition, that's like um, advancing, uh, you know, you and I were talking about um, English premier football or soccer to listeners uh, before we started this podcast. That's like advancing the ball, you know, halfway down the field and celebrating that. And so um, that is something to celebrate, but that certainly isn't the the aim when it comes to the tradition of Christianity, like our great Christian tradition would tell us that we don't just want to detach from false self, ego, um, things of that nature. We want to attach. Um, we want to attach to ultimate reality, which in our our lens is, is Jesus of Nazareth, is the spirit of Christ that is available for us, that lives at the center of our being. Um, so, you know, when Jesus would say things like in John 15, like abide in me, um, I, I think that he does not have mindfulness in mind. I think he has concept, like, I want you to, cl- in some ways, like, like I, I am your identity. I give you meaning more than your job or anything else ever could. And if you don't, if you don't cling to me, like you're going to cling to other things to define you. And so I think what happens in contemplation is that we learn to reattach, not just detach, but to reattach to ultimate meaning, um, which is God that grounds us in our being and who we are. And so I think for, for me, it's not just a, a sort of quiet sit into nothingness or into abstraction. It's meeting the God of the universe, um, the Holy Spirit at the center of my being while on my porch, trying to sift through all of the layers of, um, of what I try to attach to that gives me um, a force of meaning, but that's an illusion. So I like the idea that contemplation is more than detachment, but it's finding the right, um, the right thing or the right reality to reattach to. Yeah, I really like that too. I think um, it sounds like there still is a there still is a role for detachment, right? So yep. we're, but I I I would hesitate. I wouldn't say that that's like a, oh that there's a two step process that okay detach yourself from things and then attach yourself to Jesus. Like I think mm-hmm. there's probably an interplay there that actually attachment to Christ, attachment to the Triune God, is actually gonna somehow help us detach from things that are not going to be helpful for us or life-giving for us or help us enter into a deeper relationship with God. I think there's, there's probably interplay there somehow. Yeah, that's good. Um, you, uh, you talk about prayer being, um, difficult. We can talk a little bit about, um, what this contemplation life even is. Uh, I want to read a tiny bit from, from the beginning of chapter eight, because I thought, the book could have started with this, actually, and it's always hard to know like how a book should begin or or, or what it should do. Uh, but I just love the opening of this. So I'm just going to read it and see if you've got a response uh, to that. Uh, it says, I'll let you in on a little secret you probably already know. Most people do not think they are good at prayer. Perhaps we imagine that everyone else is better at it than we are. Or perhaps we think we are awesome at prayer, in which case we're probably not very far down the path of discipleship because humility is the fruit of a mature prayer life. Prayer is difficult. We are uh, like embodied fidget spinners, anxious about life, addicted to productivity, struggling to be still. Uh, And yeah, I just, I thought that was right on. Um, And I would love to hear about maybe your own um, struggle with stillness, uh, and maybe what led you towards trying to learn what you call in another place in the book, the skill of silence. Um, yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that? 
Yeah, I, I feel like I'm constantly having to relearn this journey every day. I I I go in fits and starts with this. Yeah. Um and like many, like I'm 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 prone to check my email before anything. Like that's my liturgy. I'm prone to check social media. I'm prone to read the Bible, think about some thoughts, and then launch into my day rather than like letting them sift into sort of the um the depths of my heart to sort of search me in that way. And, you know, a lot of my journey in contemplation is like, like, so let's just say I do like a 20 minute sit for the first 19 minutes. I hate it. I just hate it. Right. And it's like, I'll have some sort of like moment in like the last minute, whether it's like a 10 minute sit or 20 minutes or whatever, where it's like, I just feel enveloped in like the peace of God. It's not like I'm getting a word or a vision or revelation, even though I believe that stuff happens. It's that there's this like ultimate connection with a God who loves and a God who is and, and is near. And then all of a sudden my timer will go off and it'll be off to the day and I'll be like, oh, but I'll tell you, like, it's a sludge just to get there because there's so much stuff to sift through. Um, there's so much that needs to be continually surrendered and laid down. Yeah. And, um, and then I'll finally get to that space and it's almost like, God giving me a taste and then saying like, okay, now I send you into your day. But it's, it's like this really strange relationship to it. Cause I, I hate it. Cause it requires so much of that detachment from things that I want to cling to. But then when I, I finally feel like I've gone through that process and I feel a sense of connection with God, which doesn't always happen, but when that does happen, it's like right at that time, my alarm goes off. Yeah. So it's hard. And I would just say to anyone listening, like, I think the most important thing to remember in this journey is like, give yourself grace because that's what God's already doing with us. So the way we can be most like God in this is, is to give ourselves the grace that God's already giving us. Like, why wouldn't we give, if, 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 if it's okay for God to give us grace, I think God's giving us permission to give ourselves what God's already giving us. Um, so that's that's something really important for people to remember is to be gracious to yourself. Yeah. Uh, what actually what led you to actually wanting to um, like I know we say oh I hate it like I think there's lots of people who don't get to the don't get to the nineteenth minute and they've tried like a few times like oh I just can't do stillness I can't do silence that's not the way I pray like I'm not I'm not going to do that. Maybe there's some legitimacy to that, um, but I also think there's a good chunk of people that just haven't um, haven't continued practicing um, or haven't stuck with it. And so, like, was there something? What was motivating you to actually think, "Hey, this is actually something I really need"? Or what? Either yeah. what keeps you going, or how did you even start on that journey? Yeah, practically, I would say start with smaller segments. Like no one goes to the gym and maxes out day one. Otherwise, you're going to build up a bunch of lactic acid and not come back for two months or two weeks or whatever. Like we start with small segments of four minutes, of five minutes. You know, you build up just like you would anything else. Um, and and if you feel like you hate it, you don't want to be there, it's probably um, information for you to check in with. There's a reason for that because this is this is opposing every other culture in your life that's baptizing your desire to fill every square inch of your life with noise and entertainment and productivity and something to do. So pay attention to that. If you're, if your body is even resisting it at like a molecular level, um, there's probably some um, counter malformation that you've been 
It's like, it's like when you go on a detox, um, your body like hates it at first because it's gotten so used to those processed foods and that, that sugar that it doesn't, it doesn't really need, but yet has become addicted to. And it's a similar thing with this. I got into contemplation by accident because um, I had had a pretty successful early ministry career and realized like, I'm going to be a jerk if I don't resign and go like do something hard that may not work out. I was going to say, what what does that mean? What is successful? What does successful ministry career mean? (laughs) Great, great call deconstructing that because I mean, by all human metrics, um, I just, I grew a young adult college ministry really fast. um, And uh, I found myself in my early twenties, like pastoring a really large, like young church. And I realized um, I don't have the character for this. And I, it would be good for me not to wake up in 10 years um, having made like some really bad decisions or like just all the things that come, the trappings that come with um, the illusion of success and all that stuff. So um, anyways, I, I took three of my friends and we all um, like rented a house and we moved to Long Beach, California, just South of LA. And we planted a church and it like by every sense of what I had considered success, like it failed, like it didn't grow within three years. We had no money. Um, it was like the, all the things that we make up in the Western context that you need to like thrive and succeed and be a church. Like, yeah, none of those happened for us. Right. And I realized in that season that I didn't know how to pray um, because like the book begins by talking about four prepositions. Um, like I knew to, how to pray at God. I knew how to pray for things and for God. I knew how to pray to God. I didn't know how to be with God. And it became really clear to me in that season that like, my spiritual well-being is really dependent on um, sort of like human measures of success because that's when I believe God's blessing me. And that's really diametrically opposed to a life in the cross, Um, a life where, you know, as as Paul says, uh, we were reading in our staff in 2 Corinthians 4 yesterday that the death of Christ is in us and the life of Christ is with you. Like we have to hold like the, the death and life of Christ simultaneously. Um, we we actually hold those in our bodies and and that the kingdom is all sorts of paradoxes. And so I realized like I didn't have a prayer life with God. I had a prayer life at God, um, but I didn't know how to be with God. And so on Thursdays, which was my Sabbath back then, I would go to Manhattan Beach in Southern California and just sit with the Lord and just say, God, you know, what do you want to say to me? And I would just sit there for hours and take walks with God on the beach and um, I had to unlearn a lot of the things that um, I had sort of been steeped in and just realize to find contentment in whatever situation I find myself in. Even if I don't know if I'm going to be able to pay my bills next month, I'm going to, I'm going to go get a job. You know what I mean? Like it wasn't rocket science and it wasn't God saying, I love you any less. If anything, it was God saying like, Hey, I really want to teach you like what real relationship that I have in mind means. And, um, and that was really good for me. And that was the beginning of my journey. That's, that's a really great, thanks for sharing that. Um, I'd love to have, I just want to talk to you more about like, what does that actually mean to live, um, with this death and resurrection, this, uh, cross and new life and holding those together. Um, not sure what I want to ask about that, but (laughs) I was just reminded as you're talking, because I, I, you know, I also planted a church, um, success uh, where the church is still around. I count that as a success. I think that's actually like, we're, there's still people. We're still, uh, better than Ephesus, man. You're in a good spot. Um, 
And uh, I remember going to a church planting conference in the first year, went to a big uh, conference uh, down in Florida, I think. And so it was great to be in uh, sunny, warm weather. Um, But I remember going to a workshop and the workshop was basically talking about, you know what, people love being on a winning team. And so you got to create wins for your team and build on that momentum, like win and then win and then win. And the word win was used so many times in this workshop. And I'm sitting in the back and I'm just thinking, well, like, I get it. Like, I sure, like, we want people to feel good, but didn't Jesus go to the cross? Like, that just seems like a big loss. <laughs> and what are we actually, if all we do is create wins and we're just manufacturing that or, or sort of like synthesizing that as opposed to actually entering deeply into what it means to follow Christ. I, I don't know. There seemed to be something really lacking in that, that I, that I took yeah. with me, but I was like, there was no other church planting strategy that seemed to be available to me at the time. I think we're maybe in a different world now. This is like about 15 years ago. And I think there's some interesting things going on in church planting now that are actually looking at that. But back then it just seemed like, yeah, the only thing just, you know, create momentum, build a team, create wins and away you go and you'll be successful or you won't like one of those is going to happen. Yeah. But there seemed to be sort of any reflection on the cross and what it means seemed to be lacking. Yeah. I mean, a lot of that has to do with, that just sounds to me like someone's talking about organizational, emotional um, positivity and, um, and there's a place for that. I, I think most people that are a part of the church today, I'm not speaking of like staff specifically, but just humans don't feel like they're winning right now. Right. You know, like in this, I mean, especially with like what's happened in the last couple of months, like I recently bought a stick shift and I haven't had one of those since college, which was like 20 years ago for me. And um, it's occurred to me how frustrating it is when I'm in third gear and I, I drive an old Jeep Wrangler. And it's like, I so deeply am excited about getting into fourth gear and then the traffic patterns will shift and I'll need to downshift to second. And it's so frustrating because I know in my head what I want to do. And then I know like what my context is telling me I have to do. And I think that's where a lot of pastors feel right now. I think that's where a lot of people feel right now. Like COVID has been one of many pretty sizable downshifts that we're constantly making. And just when we think we can upshift to four, we have to go down to two because a new variant is around the corner or hitting our whatever, whatever. Right. Um, so that's that's like a, a pattern of loss. And if we don't reframe that, then it leads to all sorts of anger and frustration because we have a will that so deeply wants to win. And um, I mean, to, to be able to mean it and pray with Jesus, thy will be done in the Lord's Prayer, some things we pray so frequently, at least in the Anglican church, that's like, that's like really hard because I, I mean my and thy sound really close to it. Like my will be done is like my daily desire, but to really like surrender that and to know that somehow in the economy of God, um, even in our seasons of losses, there's, there's tremendous resurrection power in that weakness. Like that sounds really good on like a thesis. And that's really hard to do when you're parenting um, or when you're getting up, you know, going into an office culture that is just toxic or something like that. Um, nevertheless, that's where, like, Jesus doesn't say blessed are those who sit with those who are poor in spirit. Like Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit 
that literally there is a, a hidden blessing, just like in contemplative prayer, there's a hidden blessing in, in that moment. Like God is present in those places in ways that maybe God isn't as present or present in a different way in other places where we're winning. God, God seems to be very committed to those places that we're not winning. God seems to be committed to being there somehow. And I think beginning to see things with kingdom eyes is really what, what the invitation is right now. That the way we've, just like the culture of absurdity that we talked about, we consider so many things normal that are really absurd to the kingdom of God. And if we can shift our pattern of seeing this moment, we might actually notice things that have been there all along. We've just not been vigilant to see them. And and I think maybe that leads back to the idea of that you were talking about attachment, because I think you've got to cling to God in in all of that. Because the yeah. the hard thing is is that any time that God gifts us with um, with something that looks uh, like success, any any time we are, we're gifted with oh you know something has gone really well and that is a blessing and that's wonderful. Like the temptation is we cling to that as opposed to continuing to cling to God. And, uh, and I think that can be really, really problematic. Um, maybe that's speaking as a pastor, because I think pastors particularly might struggle with that, but probably everybody struggles with that a bit about, oh, I've got some level of success here. I'm going to cling to those things and not cling to God in the midst of both the struggle and the joy. I think that's so true. I was reading in Psalm today, I finished with Psalm 150 and I noticed it's just all about praise. Yeah. And it's interesting to me in a book that it's chock full of lament and like being honest about the harshness of reality. And even so much of like, would you destroy those babies of those enemies of mine? I mean, that's, you got to be in a pretty, pretty dark spot to pray that prayer, right? Um, that it ends with praise that no matter what we're going through, um, nevertheless, like doxology and praise is is the final word, is the one that actually wins the battle for us. Um, I think is a really good word for my church right now. Like, um, I want our church not to be optimistic, but to be hopeful. Yeah. And here's what I do know, like in the resurrection of Jesus, we know where the world is headed because we've already seen it in him. Hmm. And so like in the midst of whatever crosses we're bearing right now, to know that like the final word is life and more life and flourishing life and shalom life, like that somehow helps us to bear these moments of whatever we're carrying in a way that can look forward to a cloud of witnesses cheering us on saying, keep going, take the next step. There is more for you. Mm-hmm. There is a future and you've already seen it in my son. Um, that's something. I, I don't know of a better story in all of the universe than that. That's that's fantastic. Let's put in a little commercial for uh, the book of Psalms as as good devotional material. <laughs> And uh, so ending in praise and, and Psalm one is, is one of my favorites where um, the opening is, is this image of being rooted like a tree or you're planted by streams of living water, Um, which I think again, is another, you kind of have those two different images of the contemplative life. One of this joyous praise at the end of the Psalms and one of this, well, yeah, we need to be by the streams of living water. Like we need to actually have our roots go deep. Um, and that's where it starts. That's the beginning of the book of Psalms. So that's been something that I continue to return to is, is read through the Psalms uh, regularly. Um, and that's kind of a Presbyterians have been doing that for a long time. I think Anglicans do that as well quite a bit um, mm-hmm. you know, I do. Part of our tradition. So uh, I appreciate you bringing that up. 
Uh, can we talk about neurology for a bit to just uh, shift? Uh, um, your book talks a little bit about neurology, which is kind of fun. That's kind of uh, people are interested in that. Uh, what I was most interested in was uh, you wrote a little bit about the difference between the prefrontal cortex and the amygdala. And I think people, some people might know about that. Um, but I was curious about how the difference between those parts of our brains, what that difference is, and then how that relates to spirituality or for prayer or all the stuff we've been talking about. Yeah. So, I mean, just basic, here's what we know about the brain right now. It's more interconnected than sometimes people like to think. A lot of times it's easy to divide them into regions and to think they all do separate things, but there is some interdependence um, in your pathways that connect these systems together. So I I, want to preface it with that, that when I talk about an area of the brain. I don't mean that's the only place that can take place, but that's a that's what we sort of primarily see it as its right. its main. Um, and, and you're so going to preface you, it with you're not a doctor and you're not giving like <laughs> brain um, advice. Yes, particularly on the neurological side. Um, yeah. But I'm friends with with these people and they've legitimized uh, what I'm attempting to Absolutely. say here. Um, so the amygdala. I mean, imagine it as your flight fight flight center. You know, so this is what right now the media is targeting on all your ads, this is what's inducing our emotions. It's a detour to the soul is through the amygdala. You don't have to do the hard work of helping people analyze and reason. Um, And I think it's why our society is so crazy right now. You Canadians are much more peaceful than we are. Um, And, but, but, but when you look at just what's being targeted right now, um, marketing firms know that it's a lot cheaper to target your amygdala than anything else. And it induces behavior more quickly, Um, but it overrides, your prefrontal cortex, which is your sort of processing center, where imagine that's the CEO of your brain, sort of the one that analyzes. Um, you do have some emotional, you know, um, uh, receptors there where you can process emotionally as well. Um, but a lot of the area of our brain in our prefrontal cortex that stays offline throughout most of our day is the area that is responsible most for empathy and compassion. Mm. So it it it's it's no it's no wonder that. Empathy and compassion isn't like a high value, at least in America, because we're being targeted all day by adverts into our amygdala and that we're always crunching data in our prefrontal cortex. These are the areas when you watch people in their everyday lives, like when we hook people up to EEGs and watch what happens when you pray, what happens is a lot of those areas that stay um, uh, sort of like they're online. There's electricity flowing through them. There's neurological connections that are most vibrant and, and lit up. Those are in the areas of our prefrontal cortex and our amygdala uh, that are responsible for flight, flight, for um, a lot of analytical structures, things of that nature. What is often dormant is that empathic, compassionate part of our prefrontal cortex. And when we pray in stillness and we try to give ourselves a sacred word or um, give our frontal lobe something to do, what's interesting is that parts of our brains that fire up are those areas of empathy and compassion. So you can actually increase your ability to be slower and compassionate in a situation by practicing contemplative prayer at some time in the day and getting those sort of like muscle memory neurological pathways firing more because it increases the probability that at, at three in the afternoon when you're in traffic or when you're in that heated discussion or you get that email, you have a discipline that you have been building on that you can draw from in those patterns. And so 
so this practice isn't just like for the morning or whatever. It actually, the more you do it, the more you begin to realize that it's building stronger connections in your brain structure that you can draw from as a resource when you need it and not just react to life. Most of us live a reactionary life and strengthening neurological patterns in parts of our brain is part of learning to detach, to step back, to be still, to be patient, and then make a more logical, rational, spiritual decision so that you don't fracture the relationships around you, which by the way, is the way that we can love God the best is to love each other well. And so I think those, those things matter. Practice matters. I'll, I'll illustrate it really quickly. Um, remember the Hudson plane that glided onto the, the Hudson yeah. River? Yeah. Yes. So there's Canadian geese, if you will. They, they flew into the motor, whatever that's called. Yeah. And a lot of people, you know, the, ne- the next day, the headline was Miracle on the Hudson. And I remember N.T. Wright writing about it saying, but was it? Because this was a guy who had practiced gliding mm-hmm. like for years. So when that moment came, he didn't have to get out the manual he already had been practicing in such a way that he knew his sort of neurological patterns of gliding took over. And he knew, I don't have to try to get back to the airport, which we can't, we won't make it. I'll just glide it. I mean, I would say nine out of 10 pilots would be like, uh, what? I don't know. I, I don't practice gliding. That's not my hobby. Well, that was Sullenberger's hobby. And so I think that's a great illustration of when he needed to show up in a situation best he had practices to draw from that naturally then glided him onto the Hudson River. We see it as a miracle, but he saw it as a hobby. And he's just flexing his muscles of what he had built over the years. And it's like that right now in life. And that's why I think contemplation is really helpful for the sake of the world. That's really cool. Um, I think as well, something that, I, that, that helped me think about this is um, I can get into a fight with someone, like an argument with somebody and it's it's heated and then like then i then i'll regret it and the and the first one is my amygdala right like the first one is that fight or flight and i probably said some irrational things in the argument and so did the other person and then that compassion for that person and that love for that person is kicked in later <laughs> and um, yeah. i liked that uh the idea that the amygdala like the, it actually in your brain, it actually does work faster. Um, yeah. so, yes. so you actually can't really stop that from happening. Yep. Um, but I, I love what you're saying about how contemplative prayer actually helps us practice the, the slower part of our brain, getting some, some more time, getting some precedence, like having the opportunity, um, and it's not that we're never going to react uh, and, and we probably, and we should react. Uh, but it's, uh, it's just kind of understanding that I think is quite helpful for people. And maybe I gets to another question just of does, does any of this work? And what does that mean? Like, does, does contemplative prayer work? Yeah. I mean, you'd have to think about what does work mean? And, and we've already illustrated by working it, it can show up later in life with helping us become more compassionate, empathic people. They've done studies of yogis that have practiced mindfulness over the course of their lifetime, people that can sit for hours on end in detachment. Um, And what they're finding is areas of their brain, when they hook their brains up are very different. The way that, the way that their neuroplasticity, you know, the, the changing patterns in our brain structure, like, like you're, you're not a fixed entity. Like we're not static. We are constantly changing. And in some ways, 
your brain structure is different today than it was yesterday by what you said yes and no to based on the previous day. So I think it works in a sense of um, you can change your patterns and change your, your natural roots. If you're not happy with how you're reacting to life, well, transformation is available. I think Romans is really clear about that. I think it's Romans 12 that um, we can actually see our minds, you know, renewed and transformed. And I think this is one of the ways that happens. And we see it practiced in Jesus in the wilderness and constantly sneaking away to be in solitude. So it works in that sense. So yeah, in the conclusion of the book, there's a lot more examples of people that have been chronicled over time to see what kind of difference and change this kind of prayer makes in our lives. Yeah. Uh, Okay, uh, we'll we'll wrap up here. But I, what are you most excited about right now? Other than like, you have this fantastic book coming out, and you can tell us, you know, when and where people can get it, and those kinds of things. Um, but what are you excited about right now? Um, you know, I'm, I, I've I've started another book that I'm really excited about right now. It's um, working title is something like Christmas Rediscovered. It's clear, not clever, but you know, subtitle might be something like the Bible story you thought you knew. I really like to help people reframe um, the scriptural narratives in a way that gives them more contextual understanding so that they can really know first century context. Nice. Um, there are just, there's just gold mines in those early gospel narratives that people have never seen before in the Western context. And so I've spent the last five years training in the Middle East to start teaching people the text in the context. So I'm excited about that book because it flows out of a, a new dis, a new desire to lead people on trips into the Middle East to walk the text. So a lot of people know the text, they read the text, but they've never walked the text. So over the next couple of decades of my life, I want to start taking people more and more to Turkey, to Israel, to, to Greece, to Rome, to these places to learn about the early church, to learn about Jesus um, in context. And that that's what really fires me up. I just got back from Turkey, walking through the seven churches of Revelation in context, and and the, the things that you realize when you're walking it just far exceed anything we can comprehend on this side of of the world. So I get really fired up about. Can you give us? Can you give us one like sneak peek of like what might end up in 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 the book at some point? Like what's yeah. So I'll, I'll just be really really quick on this one. So let's take Bethlehem. Bethlehem comes from a compound Hebrew word Bethlehem, which is house of bread. Well, that's interesting, isn't it? Like the very location. We just think, well, that's where Joseph's from, and they had to go back for some sort of census, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but the beauty of it is that in the sovereignty of God, um, Jesus would call himself in the Gospel of John the 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 what of life? The bread of life, yeah. The bread of life. Isn't that interesting that, that the bread of life would be born in the house of bread? Now, what's even more interesting about that is where is the first place that they place him once he's born? And the manger. And the manger, which is also known as a feeding trough. Yeah. Because um, animals lived in the home, in the front part of a home because of warmth in the winter, and they would give warmth to the house. And so when you would come into a first century dwelling, you would basically be in the stable. So it's like a cave area. Um, it wasn't like a place out back. It was part of the home. And so there was no room in the end, meaning the guest room at the end of the house would have been taken. So they would have stayed in the house, but would have stayed with the animals. Well, I think that's so interesting that the bread of life was born in the house of bread. 
And isn't that fascinating that the bread of life would be placed in a feeding trough for the nourishment of the world? So it's putting together things like that for people to realize, my goodness, the story that God is writing is so much more poetic and beautiful than I ever thought imaginable. Mm -hmm. So like little things like that, I'm going to tease out over the course of 12 chapters so that pastors like me and you can help guide people into the mystery and beauty of the text that they think they know, but there's so much more to it. So many more layers of beauty and mystery that are just waiting to be revealed. Yeah. This would be a great podcast to like just ongoing forever. Let's let's just talk about the, the, yeah. the, the context of, uh, and how do we understand that in the scriptures? Um, that'd be something I would love to do. Uh, but, but you should do it. I would listen. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've got some good friends, Marty Solomon at Bema and Brad Gray at, uh, at, um, his podcast, I, you know, there's some really great scholars and pastors out there doing really good work on that area as well. For sure. So shout out to them. Right on. Uh, I appreciate your time today, AJ. It's been so great to meet you and have you on the podcast today. Yeah, great to meet you as well, Matt. Hope you enjoyed listening today and thanks for listening. Uh, Go and check out AJ Sherrill for sure and check out all of his work that he's been doing and the books that he's got out there. Uh, Highly recommend following him and seeing what he's up to. I'd also really appreciate it if you were able to give a review for this podcast or just even go and visit a couple of my websites. You can go to spiritualityforordinarypeople.com or go to mattbruff.com, M-A-T-T-B-R-O-U-G-H.com. And you can see a bunch of things that I'm up to as well, my fiction work that I do, uh, and also my books, and especially kind of with our theme of Uh, being with God and the presence of God, go and check out uh, my book, Let God Be Present. Um, I had a a question the other day as well from uh, another pastor who was going to use that book in a three-part book study for a group about uh, discussion questions. There are a couple of different editions of that book that are floating around out there. One has chapter questions in it and one doesn't. So if for some reason you have one that doesn't and you want chapter questions or if you're just wanting to do a group discussion um, send me an email and uh, be in touch you can always email me at matt at mattbruff.com again thanks so much for listening today take care